This talk is the fourth talk in a series of four talks titled Practicing the Precepts, recorded January 30th, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, this is the last in a series of four talks I've been giving on practicing moral precepts. And let me begin with a quick review. <coughs> the reason mystics practice precepts is to interrupt our self-centered conditioning, which is an obstacle to realizing who we really are. It's an obstacle to enlightenment, realization, gnosis, whatever word that particular tradition uses. The delusion of self, that we are some separate entity self, is the main obstacle to realization. And that delusion, however, is not just something abstract. It gets manifested in the way we live our lives and think and feel about things and so forth. So we are not practicing precepts as mystics primarily for the betterment of society, although that's a welcome side effect. We're primarily taking precepts as a, another means, another specific form of practice so that we can rid ourselves of this conditioning and see the truth about who we truly are. In order to practice, we need to apply four fundamental principles. These apply to any practice you do, meditation or whatever. Attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And the first thing that keeping a preset does is to call attention to typical situations that arise in our everyday life where we are acting out of our self-centered motivation to enhance or protect ourselves. So this is right away, just by practicing these precepts, we bring attention into our lives. So we find ourselves saying a, a lie. Oh, I have a precept not to. That just brings awareness right to that situation. Making a commitment to these precepts means that when you find that you are violating the precept, you observe what's going on. You observe your thoughts, your feelings, bodily changes, and you inquire, why? Why did I feel I had to tell that lie? What am I trying to protect? What am I trying to enhance? So you are getting to see how this self that doesn't really exist, but is a kind of illusion, how it actually manifests and controls your life, day to day, week by week, and so forth. And then practicing detachment means you look even deeper and you see, what am I attached to in that situation? So perhaps you are lying by telling an exaggerated story about what a wonderful person you are. And you can see I'm attached to some image of myself as being a great person. And then you, when you can see that attachment right there, then you can practice surrender. You drop it. You just let it go. And then you substitute the truth for the lie in that situation. So practicing these precepts is not just a matter of trying to live up to some uh, golden tablets. They are guidelines to a practice. And it's very important to also remember that there's an overriding directive, and that is to always practice out of selfless love and compassion. And occasionally you will find a situation where it is more selfless, loving, and compassionate 
to tell a lie. So keep that in mind. That is the spirit of the law that always overrides the letter of the law. But in most situations, most of us are lying for self-centered reasons and all the other situations that these precepts address. Most of the time it will be self-centered, or at least with mixed motives. The other thing we want to be careful of working with these precepts is not to make them a standard for self-judgment in a moral sense. That, oh, I'm a bad person because I lie. And I think it's very important to think of these precepts as experiments. Gandhi talked about leading his life as an experiment with truth. And so if you ask yourself, what would happen if I tried to cut lying out of my life? And look at it that way, as an experiment. And so when you are practicing, you realize that a lot of the times when you are violating your precept, it's coming out of a conditioning. It's not coming because you are a bad, wicked, evil person. It's just coming out of a years and years of conditioning. So you don't expect to be able to make a New Year's resolution and just cut out lying out of your life all at once. You realize you are going to find yourself telling little white lies. And then instead of saying, oh, that's terrible, I'm so guilty, you say, oh, wonderful opportunity to practice here. Yes, I can really see my conditioning. I can see how it works. Already, that's a little bit of waking up. So rejoice when you find yourself uh, in the midst of breaking a precept. If you are aware that you're doing it, that's wonderful. That's already, that's the first step. You've already succeeded. So, with that uh, longish caveat, let me begin here. This morning we are going to talk about the last two of the precepts, which are charity and remembrance. And I said in the opening talk that the first two precepts are really the foundation for the whole practice. That is taking responsibility for your life and practicing self-discipline. If you can't do those two things, you really can't practice the precepts. So uh, they, those two lay the foundation. And then the next six precepts are primarily restrictive. They remind us what not to do when it's coming out of our conditioning, our self-centered conditioning. The last two precepts are active precepts. In a certain sense, you could say they're the, the two crown jewels of the precepts. They remind us not just to not do things, but to take positive action to break our conditioning, to interrupt our conditioning, and to act selflessly. So let's look at charity. The precept is not to be possessive of people or things, but to give unsparingly of my assets, both material and spiritual, for the alleviation of suffering. Now, we find this precept in one form or another in all the great traditions. For instance, here's the second surah or chapter of the Quran. True piety does not consist in turning your faces towards the east or the west, but truly pious is he who spends his substance, however much he himself may cherish it, upon his near of kin and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and the beggars and for the freeing of human beings from bondage. 
So this is very specific, and one of the <laughs> one of the things about all these precepts, they try to be very specific. In the Quran, they list the kinds of things and ways you can practice charity on beggars and orphans and slaves and so forth. Just in case you didn't get it. Here, here, look, see, see. The Buddhist Awakening of Faith Sutra says, the disciple should practice charity simply and unostentatiously with no ulterior motive in mind of ambition, self-interest, reward, or praise. Here, they're telling you how to practice charity selflessly. That's the whole point here. To practice it without any uh, grasping after some reward or gaining something out of it. And here's uh, the Christian mystic, St. John of the Cross. He says... One act of charity is more precious in God's sight than all the visions and communications possible. Wow. We get an idea of how important the practice of charity is. Why does he say that? Well, for an answer, we can turn to Taoism. See, for those of you who are new here, this is one of the interesting things. When you compare the mystics of all these traditions, it really doesn't matter what tradition you're talking about. You'll find the same teaching in the mystics of any other tradition. Lao Tzu, who was the founder of Taoism, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, writes, of the relationship between the Tao, the way, which is their name for the ultimate reality, and the myriad things, that's all the forms, the whole cosmos that arises. He says... The way gives them life and rears them, brings them to fruition and maturity, feeds and shelters them. It gives them life, yet claims no possession. It benefits them, yet exacts no gratitude. It is the steward, yet exercises no authority. Such is called the mysterious virtue. Now let's stop and think about this for a minute. Is this true? We always want to test to see if what these mystics say is true. And let's just uh, put it in everyday language. Here we are. Here we are, first of all. Amazing. Bodies here, thoughts here, emotions here. We didn't ask to be here. It was a gift. We just happened to find ourselves here. Every day we happen to find ourselves here. Every moment we happen to find ourselves here. And we look around, and we're surrounded by forms and colors and sights and sounds and sensations. Trees and birds and <coughs> clouds and stars and sun and moon. Earth, mountains, rivers, oceans. It just all comes into being as a gift, freely. You never heard uh, anybody, any voice saying to the mountains, thank me for being here. You never heard the Tao bragging about how I created all this. It just is. Freely given. A miracle. The true miracle of life is life itself. The true miracle of the world is the world itself. People get very interested in miracles. Specific miracles. You know, like uh, a painting of a virgin crying or something like that or somebody levitating or whatever. That's nonsense. It pales compared to the miracle of the cosmos, which we take so much for granted. 
It's just here. Freely given. Selflessly given, if we want to translate it into these terms. Totally selfless. Giving, giving, giving. More forms, more arising, more, more, more. Endless. So, if that is the nature of reality, then here's what Lao Tzu goes on to say about the sage. The sage benefits them. That is all forms. Yet exacts no gratitude. Accomplishes his tasks, yet lays claim to no merit. Having bestowed all he has on others, he has yet more. Having given all he has to others, he is richer still. So when the sage practices charity, generosity and so forth, he simply, he or she is simply living in accord with reality, living realistically. That is the nature of ultimate reality. So the sage is just living the nature of ultimate reality, not doing anything special. Now we find the same teaching here again in all traditions about the nature of the ultimate reality. When Muslims give alms, and giving alms is one of the five pillars of Islam, that's how important it is, they are simply acting in accord with al-haq. Al-haq means the real, and that is one of the names of God, of Allah. They're simply living reality, and Allah is the compassionate and the merciful. Almost every single surah of the Quran opens with, in the name of Allah, the compassionate and the merciful or sometimes the beneficent and the merciful, another way to translate it. It, Driving this point home over and over and over again, the beneficent and the merciful, not just because uh, Allah is beneficent and merciful to us as human beings, but the whole cosmos arises out of the compassion and mercy of Allah. That's what it's doing. It's manifesting that. In the Jewish Midrash, which means exposition, a a body of literature expounding on the Torah, the law, we find this teaching. As the all-present is called compassionate and gracious, so be you also compassionate and gracious, and offer thy gifts freely to all. Which is the same thing as as, uh, Lao Tzu is saying, isn't it? I mean, there's slightly different words here. The same idea. Just imitating God, the reality. And when Christians practice charity, they too are imitating God. And here's what Dionysius, the Arapagan, one of the founders of Christian mysticism, one of the grandfathers of Christian mysticism, I should say. He's talking about uh, why God creates the cosmos. He says, because of his beautiful and good love for everything, he becomes, as it were, transported out of himself in his providence for all beings and persuaded by goodness and affection and love is drawn from his height above to dwell within all things through his superessential and ecstatic power in which he yet abides within himself. So the idea is the cosmos is this expression of God coming from what is transcendent into form to be all this. And it's all just out of love, a free gift. No other reason. So all these mystics are saying the same thing. When we practice charity, we are simply 
living realistically rather than living under delusion in a deluded way. And insofar as our own nature, our true nature, is this indwelling divinity, the core of our being, our consciousness, insofar as that is true, when we act charitably, we are accessing or expressing our true nature directly, immediately, not just thinking about it, not just uh, contemplating it. We are being it, just like that. This is why the Tibetan master, Bokar Rinpoche, says, love and compassion are not qualities added to the mind. These qualities are part of the awakened state, even if for the moment this state exists only as a potential for us. This is very important. It's extremely important for us to understand when we practice charity and when we try to put love and compassion into action. It is not ultimately something we have to generate. We don't have to become good, loving, compassionate beings. We are loving, compassionate beings. We don't know it. We simply have to remove the obstacles and it will flow freely, spontaneously. So a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to generate love and compassion, especially when they're talking about the emotions of love and compassion. And then they can't, or the emotions are around for a while and then they fade away. You know, all emotions are transitory. That is not ultimately love and compassion. That is just a one form of the expression of love and compassion. And then they get upset, and then they get self-critical and self-judgmental. Don't worry about generating love and compassion. Just pay attention to what is in the way. See what is in the way and work on removing that and love and compassion will flow freely. That's why it's only a potential for us. We are ignorant of our true nature. And the reason we are ignorant is because our perception of ourselves in the world is veiled. And it is veiled by this delusion of a self. That we are something other than this ultimate reality. That we are some little entity in here, whether you think of it as uh, you're just a body or whether you think you're a soul or whatever you think, it doesn't matter. That we are some separate little entity that is perishable. Because we look around and we see everything is perishable and we think, oh my gosh, I'm perishable. I better hang on to this. I better defend it. I better do everything I can to enhance it, protect it. And so that's how this conditioning arises. It arises based on a fear that comes out of a delusion. So in a certain sense, we want to work backwards and get down to that delusion and see that it's just a delusion, and then poof, the whole house of cards collapses. Now, it's important to recognize this Because what distinguishes what we might call secular charity from spiritual charity is that spiritual charity has this selfless quality. That's what we are trying to get to, even if we can't do it immediately. Now, secular charity is something else again. And I think most people in this culture... When they think of charity, they think of writing a big check to the United Way at the end of the year. 
especially at the end of the year, near tax time, because then you get a big tax write-off. Or if you happen to be a little richer, maybe you get involved in hosting, you know, thousand-dollar plate dinners for uh, UNICEF or something. Or if you're really wealthy, then maybe you want to donate a million dollars to Sacred Heart Hospital there, and they'll build a cancer wing and name it after you. So, you know, this is what we think of charity. And, and because we're Americans and always bigger is better, you know, the more money somebody gives, the more impressed we are. Oh, what a humanitarian. Almost every week or so, there's some article in the paper about somebody who gave a million dollars to the university or this or that. You know, oh, we're very impressed. Now, believe me, socially, this is not bad. From a social point of view, it's valuable that rich people give all their money away. But if you're only doing it in order to get a tax write-off, or in order to get the approval of your peers, or in order to have a wing of a hospital named after you so everybody knows what a great humanitarian you are, if that's the only reason you're doing it, it's spiritually worthless. Spiritually worthless. It would be more worthwhile giving a dime to somebody with no expectation of any reward or anything. That would be spiritually more valuable. So this is something we have to keep in mind. It is not a question of how big the gift is. There's also a problem with that kind of approach to charity, and that is if you only give once a year, or if you save up your money and give one big lump sum and so forth, then you only have a chance to practice once a year. And we want to be practicing charity all the time. So really, it would be better to give less, but more often. Because if you gave every week, then you have a chance to practice every week instead of just once a year. If you gave every day, you'd have a chance to practice every day. Now, of course, there's a catch. There's always a catch. And the catch is, after saying so much about how we have to practice out of compassion and love and so forth, if you wait until you feel pure, selfless love and compassion before you give anything, most of us are not going to practice very much. So the trick here is to practice first. Take it as an experiment, even though you don't feel uh, immediately pure, selfless love and compassion. It's a little bit like a priming the pump. If any of you grew up in a place where they didn't have running water, they had pumps. Uh, you have to keep a little bucket of water next to the pump, and you have to pour the water down as you're pumping until there's a seal before then the water starts flowing. So we can't just wait around until we have these feelings. We want to start practicing first and then see what happens. What does that entrain when we start practicing? And uh, if you do that, the first thing that will happen is you'll find resistance. You won't find love and compassion flowing freely. You'll find, oh no, I don't want to do that. You'll find attachments, desire, grasping, clinging. Let's take an example, a simple little example. How many of you have ever noticed in a grocery store little change cans on the counter, usually for muscular dystrophy or an animal shelter or something like that? 
That was a rhetorical question, but I'm glad you didn't notice. Shows you're mindful. <laughs> now, this does not apply to everybody. I'm talking out of my own experience, and I think it applies to most people. Even the thought of parting with a quarter <laughs> brings up a little clinging when you look at one of those things. It's amazing. A quarter is nothing these days with the inflation. But uh, a little bit. So you watch that. Instead of just ignoring it, you look at that can and see what it is bringing up. It might bring up a little embarrassment. This, this was true of me. I did a practice, I'm going to recommend it later, about putting money in these cans. Because I'm such a sophisticated person, and putting money in these cans is corny. I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> Especially if you have a practice, and you have to ask for change to put something in the can, and you draw attention to yourself, and everybody's waiting in line, and here you're fumbling around trying to get something to put in this silly little can. So here you find an attachment to an image of yourself that's in the way of true giving, uh, true generosity. Then you can watch your mind, because the, right away the ego mind goes into gear and starts cranking out rationalizations for why you shouldn't give here. Because the executives of these charities are so overpaid, and so much of the money that you give goes into their salaries and their high lifestyle and they're flying all over the world, it's a big ripoff, right? So you don't give that quarter there. Then you go out into the street, maybe. Then some guy comes up and, you know, a panhandler asking for spare change. And you think, oh, he's an alcoholic or a drug addict. He's just going to go and spend it on some cheap wine. I'm not going to give him that quarter. And then you get home, and then somebody comes and knocks on the door, soliciting money. You know, they're for the orphans in Bosnia, and they've got a you know, a whole list of things to sign and all that, and you look at and say, this guy's a rip-off artist. I'm not going to give him my quarter. And you've never given your quarter away. Every situation, the mind comes up with a reason why you shouldn't give it here. You might also notice that all these situations arouse a little suffering, cause a little suffering. Not big-time suffering, just a little, a little constriction around the heart, a little tightness, a little wanting to turn away from life. Ever notice that? And we then attribute that suffering to the situation, to the panhandler or the solicitor or whatever. I wish they wouldn't come around. I always have this little discomfort when they do. But what we want to notice is that suffering is coming from within. It's not being caused by the panhandler. That's just the trigger to your own attachment, your own self-centeredness. Best way to practice this precept is to invent for yourself some routine, some discipline of giving so that you can practice it a lot. So, for instance, uh, one of the things you might do is make it a point every time you see one of those little cans on the counter to put something in it. If you really want to be uh, strict about this, Make it a point every day to find some can to put that money into. Or make it a point to give something to somebody that you don't know. In fact, Jennifer had this practice once. What was your, it was a vow to give to some 
So do a good deed every day. Do one good deed every day. Okay. And then she found herself at the end of the day, if she hadn't done a good deed, she'd be driving around up to 13th Street looking for some transient to give a quarter to so she could come home. <laughs> that's a, that's this is a little, I'm, I'm telegraphing ahead here a little bit, but this shows you how it can transform your life. You, most of the time we avoid 13th Street, but she's going out looking for somebody to give to. How much you give is not important. This is always a big question that comes up. Uh, if you are a complete renunciate, then you can just basically give everything beyond your uh, day's needs. There was a Zen master who came here whose name I don't remember. I tried to look it up this morning. I couldn't find it. In the early part of the 20th century, and he was serving the Japanese immigrant community. And... Uh, people would try to give him money because he always had nothing. I mean, he had a robe and a begging bowl and whatnot. And he would always take whatever they gave him and he would spend for, I think, two meals a day on himself. And by the end of the day, he would have given everything else away. So they could never give him money like for his old age, his security, or to accumulate anything. He would just, whatever came through, he would take out what he needed and the rest would go. We can't do that if we're living a householder's life. We have responsibilities. To, to play the game of being a householder means you enter into responsibilities to wider and wider circles of people. So first you have responsibility to your family and your children and so forth and so on. So we can't just give everything away and think we're practicing charity. That would actually be selfish because there you're putting other people at risk just for your own spiritual practice. So we prioritize, but everybody has something that they could give, even if it's just a dime, a dime a week. So how much does it matter? Mother Teresa of Calcutta tells an interesting story about a wealthy woman who came to her who wanted to give more in terms of money, but found she couldn't. And she said, you know, one of the things about me, I have this attachment to these beautiful, expensive saris, you know, the dresses. And that's where a lot of my money goes. And I know it's, you know, it's frivolous, but uh, that's my conditioning. So Mother Teresa told her, well, here's what you should do. And I don't know, you people who have been to India know what the exchange rate is. I don't know. But let's say it's a, a, she was spending a thousand rupees on a sari. I don't know if that's a lot or a little. I assume it's a lot. And Mother Teresa said, well, next time only buy 900 rupee saris. And, and then you can have 100 rupees to give to charity. So she started doing that. Well, she found that the giving was really joyful. So she started buying 800 rupee saris and 700 and 600. And every time she'd come around, she'd be glowing and she'd be wearing, you know, more and more modest saris. And finally, she was spending, I don't know, 200 rupees on saris. And she came around, Mother Teresa said, stop. You can't go any lower than that. You have social position. You have your husband, your family. <coughs> you'd be satisfied with 200 uh, rupee saris. Because she was ready to go down to 50 rupee saris. You see what I mean? So this is, uh, I'm just telling you this story because it's a, a way to think about charity skillfully when you really come down to thinking about what you can afford to give. But we can take another clue from Mother Teresa about giving. <clears throat> and that is, she says, give until it hurts. That's an interesting thing to say. Give until it hurts. Why does she say this? Because if it doesn't hurt a little bit, 
We haven't touched into an attachment. If you're giving just out of your surplus, it's not bothering you. We want to be bothered by our giving. We want to find out where that little attachment is that's causing us our suffering so that we can shine the light of attention on it, so that we can detach from it, and so that ultimately we can surrender it. So no matter what it is, go that one little extra step. So if, you, if, you, if quarters are nothing to you and you can flip them away, but 35 cents says, ooh. Okay, there you go. You're on the right track. Charity does not always mean giving money. Charity can mean giving time and energy. And in fact, it's a very important and perhaps more important form of charity than giving money. And again, we are confronted every day with situations where we could practice this. We don't notice it. One of the purposes of taking precepts is to continually call our attention to that. So again, a typical kind of situation is you might be shopping at the Albertsons and you've finished and you're coming out and there's a little old lady struggling with her packages who obviously could use some help. You could stop and help her get them in the car and so forth. And you look at your watch and, oh my God, you, you, your favorite soap opera's on. <laughs> Oprah show or something. Well, I don't have time. Somebody else will help her. You jump in the car and race home. Well, there you have an attachment. And here's an opportunity to give until it hurts. Okay, so you're going to be five minutes late for the Oprah show. It's okay. The world's not going to collapse. Or you're not going to find out who slept with who on, you know, road of life or whatever it is. <laughs> so you stop and you help the little old lady. But, you know, these are, I mean, we laugh, but isn't it true? I don't know if it's little old ladies, but we find situations all the time where we could actually extend ourselves a little bit, go out of our way to help somebody. Not just strangers. In our own families, our own circle of friends, at work with our colleagues. Often we take the attitude, of, particularly at work, I'm not paid to do that. That's their job. Where, you know, you don't have nothing to do. Somebody's struggling with something, you go help them. I mean, it's just the simple little gestures of extending ourselves. That is all charity. Another form of uh, charity is to, if you want to make this more formal, is to volunteer. There are plenty of agencies and places around town that need your time and energy. You can read the kids at the library. You can volunteer at hospitals. There, you know, uh, just anybody who bothers to look can find something to do. People come to me sometimes and say, you know, I don't know what to do with my life and this and that and whatnot. Opportunities all over the place. And this can be a very powerful practice. And I'll just give you an example from my own experience. Some of you have read about this in my book, Naked Through the Gate. But when I was on my spiritual path, I was an executive uh, with a film company. And I used to go to this place called the Center for Healing Arts. And they did a lot of programs, different sorts of speakers and workshops and things like that. And I was getting a lot out of it. So I thought, well, I want to give something back. So I would volunteer to go once a week for an evening to help them set up for a program. Now, I was volunteering my time. That was great. But I found there were other benefits, too. When I got there, the kinds of things they asked me to do were like to set up chairs, sweep the floor after everybody left, even clean the toilet. I said, I'm an executive. I don't set up chairs and sweep floors. So it turned out to be also a practice of humility. 
It was a wonderful practice. It really was. And often when we volunteer, if we're going to volunteer, we have to do it with that attitude of selflessness and let go of those sorts of more subtle psychological attachments. Sometimes people are very haughty and arrogant when they volunteer. They think, well, I'm here, you should appreciate me. And there are certain things they don't want to do and they don't work nearly as hard as if they were getting paid for. You should be working twice as hard and be twice as giving. You are just a body showing up for service. Use me, whatever. It's a wonderful freeing practice. And finally, charity also means sharing your spiritual assets. And again, this can be a, uh, in terms of skillful means, a tricky thing, particularly in our culture. Sharing your spiritual assets doesn't mean running out and proselytizing everybody and, and preaching at people and so forth. But it also means not hiding your light under a bushel. And in our culture, where people who are on a spiritual path, particularly on a path that isn't a recognized uh, you know, specific tradition like being a Christian can be thought of a little weird. And so sometimes some people are reluctant to talk about their spiritual experiences, what's going on in their life. But if people are inquiring or if you feel just in a conversation it's helpful to share something, not to preach at them, but to share something you learned in your practice, this is an act of charity. This is being unsparing with your spiritual assets. And it's very important, especially in our culture, which is a culture that's spiritually so lost. Some people won't respond. Okay, that doesn't matter. We're not attached to the results. But you may actually really be helping somebody profoundly. You may be the spark. And you shouldn't take credit for it. You may, let's put it this way. You may be being used as a spark that sends them off on a whole spiritual path. You don't know. And it's not your business to know, really. But if we are just honest about what's going on with ourselves, honest about what's important to us, honest about our values, just being who we are, this can be a great benefit to people and a great benefit to society. So that's another very important area to remember what the precept of charity is about, how to practice it. Precept of charity is really, when you get into it, most people find the most beautiful of the precepts. It's the one that directly allows us to access that love and compassion. And if we start doing this, and if we start removing the veils, it starts to flow. And this is why Dogen, a great Zen master, said, mind transforms the gift, and gift transforms the mind. As we do... Oh, then something happens. The more we do, the more things happen. If you don't do, ain't nothing going to happen. And eventually you get to the point where you don't know whether you're doing it or, or not, or whether God's doing it, and it doesn't matter, or grace is doing it, or whatever term you want to use. It becomes all one thing. And Dogen said elsewhere, he said, some people think that uh, if they give to others first, then they're going to lose something. And he says the whole thing about giving is it benefits everybody. Giving is non-dual. It benefits the giver and it benefits the person who gives. And you can't separate them out. And you can only discover this through practicing charity yourself. I think uh, 
The Apostle Paul probably wrote the most beautiful passage about charity that I know of. And in charity in early Christianity meant love and the doing of the good works. But it also meant something a little bit more profound than we think of charity, you know, as just giving a check at the office. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and not have charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods on the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity never faileth, but where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. Where there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Now, what he's talking about here is gnosis. All our knowledge, all our uh, pretensions to prophecy, and all that stuff, all that vanishes away. Now we know in part. Then, when that which is perfect has come, we will know even as we are known. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. Our knowing God is God knowing us. Direct, immediate, one. That's what Paul is saying we're aiming for. And then how do we get there? And he mentions faith, hope, and he says charity. Charity is the most important of them all. Charity is the one that removes all those veils and obstacles. It removes that whole dualistic mindset. And it allows then the waters of love and compassion to flow into our lives and through our lives. So now we come to the last precept, the tenth one, remembrance. To recite these precepts once a day, renewing my vows and remembering this path which I have freely chosen. So why do we do this? Why do we practice remembrance? And why do we recite the precepts once a day? That sounds like something you just do by rote and very mechanical and so forth. But what we're trying to do here is to memorize the precepts to memorize the precepts so that we have them available when we need them. So for instance, let's say you're telling a lie and it may just be confusion that you don't know whether this is really telling a lie or not, or is this violating the precept? If you've memorized the precept, then it will arise spontaneously right then. You'll notice, you'll say, oh yes, this is telling a lie. Okay, that's my precept. So really, when we memorize the precepts, when we recite them once a day, we're like planting them like seeds in our psyche, deep within the psyche. And then they will sprout when appropriate in relation to whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. It's interesting because if you do this for a while, you will find that they may even sprout in your dreams. It can happen. 
So in your dreams, you run into some situation where you're telling a lie and the precept comes to mind. And then you can practice your precept in the dream, which is wonderful because then you have that much more opportunity to practice. In fact, this is something that happened to Todd. I don't think Todd will mind my uh, telling this story. You don't mind, do you, Todd? Briefly about a dream he had. And just very quickly, a Nazi-type tyrant was accusing him of committing some murder, and he was groveling in terror at this tyrant's feet, and he was about to confess, even though he hadn't done it, just out of fear. And then the precept came. No, that's telling a lie. That's not honest. So he said, no, I didn't commit the murder. And then what happened was, very in rapid succession, this uh, tyrant Nazi turned into a Boy Scout master and then turned into a little Boy Scout and ran away. <laughs> so in the dream itself, there's a teaching about having the courage to practice and how it can transform situations, terrifying situations. So it's wonderful to be able to practice in your dreams. It's through the keeping of the precepts that we really transform our lives and make them spiritual. It is not enough just to meditate or pray or go off and do chanting, uh, Sufi chanting once a week. These, they're wonderful practices, but they are not enough. If we only do that, our spiritual path becomes compartmentalized. It's something we do in this set place and time over here, and then we go off and we're not doing anything to interrupt that conditioning. It continues to build. You know, it continues to deepen. It's like a car caught in a sand trap. You keep spinning the wheels and it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. That's why uh, I think it was one of the Catherines, Catherine of Siena or Catherine of Genoa, said not to advance on the spiritual path is to go backward. That doesn't mean we go in a straight line. It's often, you know, one step back, two steps forward. It's often zigzag. But at least we're moving. We're not just sitting there spinning our wheels, digging ourselves deeper and deeper into our selfishness. So practicing the precepts is really what allows us to start transforming our lives. And people talk about, oh, transformation, transformation is a very popular term in the New Age circles in our culture. And this is the way you actually want to do it. If you don't do it, you're like a simile I heard once. You're like a, a stone. You put the stone in water, and it looks wet. You pull it out, and it looks wet. But if you crack it open, it's dry inside. <laughs> Practicing the precepts is what makes the stone porous so the water can get in there. Totally soak the stone through. So that's like our lives. And if you start, you don't see uh, fruit right away like anything uh, worthwhile. You practice for a month, six months, a year, six years. And you look back, and you look back, and you see you are a different person. You are a different person, and you see your life differently. You see that that grasping and that selfishness and that self-centeredness was suffering. You have even compassion for your own former self as a poor, suffering being. So it's really important. It's really important, especially if you're a householder, especially if you're a lay person with, who doesn't have time to do three hours of intensive meditation a day or whatever. This is the way you can make everything into spiritual practice. Then you discover for yourself what the mystics say. The more self-centered you are, the more suffering you're going to experience.
And the more selfless you are, the more bliss and joy you're going to experience. It's, it's just that simple. And I'm going to close with telling you one personal story, which uh, I did write about in my book, so maybe some of you already know it, about practicing charity and about how it can transform what were painful experiences into blissful experiences. And let me go back just a little bit. When I was growing up, my mother used to make me do the dishes. This is one of the things we fought about all the time. And I, it wasn't, uh, at least I had to clear the table or something every day. And then particularly when the television came in, I didn't have a television, but the kid down the block had a television. And Flash Gordon would come on every evening at 7 o'clock. And I just resented having to do the dishes. I'd rush through them so I'd get down and see Flash Gordon. So I grew up with a distaste for dishes. And then when I was in the army, when I was a trainee particularly, I wasn't a very good trainee, so I ended up doing a lot of KP. KP means kitchen patrol. And that means doing the dishes. And that means after dinner for a company of 200 men, you're up until 11 o'clock at night doing stacks and mounds of dishes. And not just the dishes and the silverware, but the pots and pans. You're in these big sinks and scrubbing them out and you're already exhausted from training all day and you fall into bed at 11 o'clock night exhausted from this KP and filthy and greasy and dirty and everything. And awful. Dreadful. Hated. That's why, that's why the soldiers who aren't such great soldiers end up doing a lot more. When I got to Vietnam... And when I got into combat, then I, and I didn't believe in God at all, but I said, God, if I live through this, I will never complain about doing the dishes again. <laughs> to me, suddenly KP looked like wonderful duty. <laughs> then I got out of Vietnam. I did live through it, all my limbs and stuff. And you know what? I forgot about that. <laughs> I didn't like doing the dishes. Then I went on a spiritual path, and I started thinking, you know, you should honor that promise you made. Now, you know, and this would be a good spiritual practice. By the way, this is also an example of how you can customize a precept for yourself. You can take something in your own life and, and customize it just for your own attachments and, and whatnot. So then when I went on this little journey that led up to my awakening, I didn't have these beautiful 10 precepts, but I did manage to uh, knock together four or five rules for my journey, which were basically precepts. And one of them was to be helpful wherever I went. Wherever a task needed to be done, I'd be staying at these various communities. I would just pitch in and didn't matter what it was. And so I would do that. Now, one of the things that nobody, I found, likes to do are the dishes. So I ended up pitching in a lot with the dishes. They always were glad to have volunteers for the dishes. So I started to actually get over this distaste for doing the dishes. It became fun to, to help out and to do dishes. Then finally, I ended up at Brighton Bush. It's a place some of you may know across the mountains over in eastern Oregon. And it's a uh, community where they host spiritual teachers and gatherings and things like that. And I stayed there for four or five days. And at the, the second to last day I was there, they were having a big wedding. They were hosting a big wedding. And it was a wonderful wedding. They had 150 guests or so. 
they had hired live musicians who played Irish music, and Irish is my roots, and I love Irish music, always tugs at my heartstrings. And I uh, volunteered to be a server to go around with wine and, you know, fill up people's glasses and stuff like that. So, and I was nipping a little bit at that too, but, and the Irish music was playing, and I was getting all choked up. And then this wonderful young couple were getting married, you know, a really happy time. And the party was winding down, and we put away the wine and stuff, and I'd forgotten I was wandering over to the kitchen house. I don't know if they still have it, but in those days they had this, the kitchen and the cooking area was a little separate sort of block house off the lodge, the main lodge. And I looked in there, and there were these stacks of dishes <laughs> and pots and pans, just almost to the ceiling. And I thought, well, you know... <laughs> somebody's going to have to come in and do this after this party. Who's going to feel like doing that? So I'll go in and I'll just start doing some of these dishes, you know, make a, a little dent in them. And I go in and I fill up the sink with this hot water and the soap and it's foaming and steaming and so forth. And I roll up my sleeves, I take off my jacket and I start doing these dishes. And it just turns into one of the most joyful experiences of my life. I am singing, I'm it's just luxurating in the sensations of this, you know, and scrubbing out these pots and pans, and I'm stacking them up, and, and the steam is billowing, and I'm just singing at the top of my lungs, fortunately alone. And this guy walks by, and he looks in the window. I'll never forget his look. It was like shock, like horror, like something had gone wrong. He saw this guy all alone, just loving doing dishes. And it just occurred to me then. I just flashed him. I said, you know, this is the great secret. It's an open secret. Nobody believes it. But this is so joyful. This is so, I mean, really blissful. Just giving. Stop worrying about how much you work you did before, this or that, or what's fair, somebody else's job and all that. Just plunge in and do. I did all the dishes. And I just, for two days, I was just floating in bliss. So I'm just giving you this as an example of how something in your life that you think of as a cause of suffering can be, I'm not promising you will, but can be transformed into something really joyful. If you practice these precepts. So that's... uh, the end of the four talks on the precepts. I hope it was valuable for you. I hope I've inspired you to at least take a look at precepts, if not try them, and especially if you're on a spiritual path, to recognize their importance. So are there any questions or comments? or Yes. Yeah, what kind of wine was that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask. Never looked a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> I know we've talked about this before, but I want to talk about the part of charity that says to give unsparingly. <clears throat> I don't understand. The story about the woman in the saris, why shouldn't she break out of that social, uh, keeping up of that social status? Why shouldn't she give more and more? Or why, why should I keep a bank account of money just for myself? Why not give truly give unsparingly? If we all did that, it'd be a different world. Let me start by commenting on that word unsparingly. When we were trying to actually write these precepts, this was one of the toughest words to choose. What word do you put in there? Unsparingly, unstintingly. How do you communicate the intention of when you give, there's no clinging? Not 
necessarily that you're giving everything away like a monk or a nun might. You see what I mean? So that is, just to clarify, that is what unsparingly is supposed to mean, even if it may, may not be the exactly right word there. But in that moment of giving, there's giving with no attachment, no claim, mm-hmm. just totally freely. Now, for each person, you have to decide what's right for you, given your social framework. So if we have obligations, social obligations, family obligations already, if we can untie those knots so that nobody's left holding the bag, okay. But if we can't, then it's our responsibility to stay as householders in the world and fulfill our duties. The problem I see is that we somehow maintain the clinging when we think, yeah, I need to keep this. I need to keep that. I need to keep this. Yeah, that's my social standing. I have to have this. And pretty soon, it, it's really this false sense of security that we've created. Yeah, tomorrow I, I might be in the hospital. I'll have to have that. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, there's nothing you can give away because you have to have it all for yourself. You are very right. And this is why yes. we have to pay close attention and be very mindful of how our minds are working because our ego minds will rationalize and rationalize and rationalize. Do you know what I mean? So we have to be cautious about those voices going on, do you know? But we still do have to pay attention to the people around us. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, just an example from my life. I dress fairly simply, but I still have fairly neat, clean clothes. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I would go down to visit my mother in Mexico, among her friends, and for her taste, I always looked like a bum. <laughs> so I would dress up as much as I felt I could without like having to work to buy expensive clothes just to please her. Do you know what I mean? I try to bring a jacket along and, you know, try to bring newer jeans. So, they <laughs> but, so there's a little compromise going on there. But if I had taken the attitude that I don't care, mother, and I showed up always in rags, which I, you know, well could have, this would cause her a lot of unnecessary suffering. And the difference between dressing in rags and dressing the way I do is monetarily very little. Very little, especially since good friends buy me things from the goodwill and stuff like that. I spend (laughs) almost nothing on clothing. So, again, each person's case is different. Mother Teresa was saying to this woman, given Indian society, given the social standing and all that, that if she went any lower, she must have been dressing very modestly for her class and position, then she would start to call attention to herself, call attention to her family, be embarrassing and, you know, whatnot, and cause suffering. But we have examples like Peace Pilgrim, I mean, who, who really went to the extreme. Sure. And now we honor her as a great person for having, you know, given away everything or even her name. Um, I mean, maybe some people in her family suffered from that, but... This is the point. There come situations in most people's lives where there's a, a time of passage where you, it might be very appropriate for you to decide. Let's say you did have kids. Mm-hmm. Let's say they grow up, they leave the nest, you know, at, I don't know, 18 or 21 or whatever, and there you are, and you can look around at your life and say, you know, what's next? That might be an opportune moment. If you really want to become peace pilgrim, okay. You know, maybe your parents have worked hard. They're going to get Social Security. They're going to have Medicare. I mean, there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to have to support them. You know, it may be hard on them emotionally that you're leaving, but that's different than abandoning your social responsibilities to them, you see? So there is not a clear-cut answer for your question, Mm -hmm. Mary Song. I mean, it really is looking at your heart. 
and weighing really what is the most selfless, compassionate thing I can do in this situation, moment to moment. And then, you know, bigger moments of decision open up and there's smaller ones. But if we're always moving in that direction, we're okay. Yes. I think uh, sometimes you have to go all the way through it to understand. But the selfishness and the unselfishness, you know, you if you're truly selfish, you're not at all aware of being selfish. But at one point in my life, I made a decision that was based on what I thought was principle. And it resulted in me losing my job. And uh, I didn't think about my family before I put myself in that position. So obviously, very adverse on them, far-reaching adverse effects. But not only them, my job affected so many other people in the community, bankers and you know, God knows how many people were affected by my stand on what I thought was principle. And my stand on principle was entirely selfish. Mm. You know, I mean, I never, it never even occurred to me that, you know, I thought this is right and that's wrong, therefore I'm going to do right. You know, so from this angle here, I'm looking back on it and thinking, you know, that was a terrible decision. Yeah, but you, but again, looking back on it, being able to see that is awakening. You see what I mean? And you're very right. We can often do the right deed for the wrong reason. It's a famous line from Murder in the Cathedral, which is a play by T.S. Eliot about Thomas a. Beckett, who was martyred. And the whole play is his struggle with, am I going to be martyred because I want the glory of being a martyr, and that's why I'm going to allow this to happen, or am I truly standing on principle? So we can seem to be standing on principle. We can seem to be taking the moral high ground and be totally selfish. And you see, the thing is, only you can know. Only each of us can know. We have to look into our hearts. So, you know, life is like this. It's a relative world in that sense. And by the way, this grappling with what is relatively the best thing to do goes on. I don't care if you're enlightened and wake up and whatever. This is the play of life. Well, should I, should I? What's the most skillful thing to do here? In the relative world, we don't and can't know absolutely. So we have to hold our judgments tentatively. We have to act, and so we have to make a judgment, but we have to be prepared to let it go when somebody shows us, oh, there was a better way, and not cling and not hang on to our positions. So we're constantly doing this dance, if you like. And that goes on and on and on. Or more importantly, listening to what your heart says and not what you think is the right decision. Yes, indeed. Finally and ultimately listening to what your heart says. But then again, you can be acting uh, very out of love and compassion and still learn then that it wasn't the most skillful thing to do. I'll just give you one example. Uh, When I was down in Mexico, the town that my mother lived in was a very well-off town. There uh, There were no starving people there. The kids around the Jardin, the main plaza, the square, the Mexican kids, started kind of game. They realized they could hit up tourists for money. So they'd go around, you know, with their hands out and make sad faces. And then <laughs> Americans and other tourists would start giving them money. The Mexican, the adults, would come and scold the Americans. Say, don't give our kids money. They don't need the money. And you're teaching them begging. Do you know what I mean? And we don't want this. So... 
they were doing it because they thought they were helping all these poor third world children. The, the kids were just taking advantage of them, and it turned out not to be skillful. So they were listening to their hearts, and they were doing right. They shouldn't be faulted for that. But as you learn, oh, it's more complicated. Oh, no, it's more skillful not to give to these kids. So we we always following our heart, and our mind comes in secondary. We don't want to throw the mind away. The mind says, yes, ah, that's, that's the right thing to do. Now, here's a better way to do it. Oh, here's a more skillful way to do it. And that's where we're always adjusting. We're not adjusting the heart, but we are making adjustments in our outward actions, depending on what reason tells us. Any other questions or comments? Well, then let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to hang out and have some tea, check out the library, and chat. Until we see you again, peace to you all.